0: All right, so we are, uh, beloved, in Colossians, continuing our study there. In Colossians chapter 1, we've come to verses 15 and 20, 15 through 20. And as we turn to Colossians chapter 1, let me begin with a, a confession, a personal confession. One of my spiritual weaknesses, perhaps sins at times, is I find it difficult to consistently think high enough thoughts about Jesus. I don't think bad or evil thoughts of the Lord by his grace, but my thoughts can be rather ordinary, run of the mill, kind of mundane and low. And I'm aware that that's how my enemies would have it, that Satan, the world, and the flesh would work together to get me to think, Low thoughts of Jesus. They, they can't remove Jesus from the world. So they bring thoughts of Christ down to a, a lower level. They wish to dethrone Christ, to, to pull him off the pedestal that he, he rightly deserves in the attention and the affections of his people. This is why no major television show about Jesus ever presents him the way the Bible does. This is why cults Include Jesus in their teaching, but add things to him or take things away and diminish him. This is why entertainers at award shows thank God and thank Jesus for their award while making music and movies that celebrate sin. We're just too accustomed to low thoughts about the Lord. Satan's strategy is to convince us that Jesus ain't all that. Satan's a hater. And the one he hates the most is the Lord Jesus Christ. And high thoughts of Jesus, however, exalted thoughts of Christ, produce in us a spiritual vitality. They awaken us and excite us. They motivate us and move us. If Jesus appears high to us, even too high to comprehend, then we stand in awe of him. But if Jesus appears low to us, even within our reach, then we yawn at him. We get bored with him. We get distracted from him. So what I need are regular moments of devotion when the Lord is, as the Bible says, high and lifted up. When I see him as the lofty one of Israel. I need high thoughts of Christ to break me free of the Christ-hating schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Perhaps you do too. And our text this morning may just be the highest vision of Jesus in all of the Bible. I pray as we consider Colossians 1:15 to 20, the Lord may be pleased to, to lift our eyes to the awesome majesty of the one who made us, And saves us. If you're taking notes this morning, we want to focus on two points. Number one, there is nothing in all of creation greater than Jesus. We see that in verses 15 to 17. There is nothing in all of creation, in all of the cosmos, in all of the universe, greater than Jesus. And number two... There is nothing in all of redemption, in all of salvation, greater than Jesus. Verses 18 to 20. Lord, let us see your face today. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning This, many scholars think, is a hymn that the Apostle Paul inserts right in the middle of his letter to those Christians in Colossae Colossae that he has heard about, a church that's been planted by one of his colleagues, Epaphras, and this hymn kind of picks up right where verse 14 leaves off, where verse 14 makes reference to Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's as if Paul erupts in poetry and song and it's as if he wants to press home really clearly that this one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, well, he ain't ordinary. That our thoughts of him must be high. If indeed we want to ascribe to him the majesty that he deserves. And we might divide this hymn into two sections. Verses 15 to 17 really focus on Jesus' relationship to all of creation. And verses 18 to 20, you'll see there he shifts, and he then begins to speak of the body, the church. And so he focuses on Jesus' relationship to the new creation, to the church, to the redeemed humanity that he has purchased With his blood. And all along the way, Paul is giving us Jesus' resume. He's giving us the bullet points, the description, the dossier, the profile of this one we love and worship. Notice the first thing. In demonstrating that Jesus is greatest in all of creation, he tells us in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. The Bible throughout tells us that no man has seen God. That God is not corporeal. God doesn't have a body. He isn't visible in that way. In fact, the Bible tells us no man in his sin can see God and live. The question becomes, well, how does God, who is invisible, make himself known? Well, he has an image bearer. It's striking. All of us are image bearers. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our own image and likeness. All of us, in some sense, have been stamped with the imprint of the likeness and the image of God, but all of us have ruined the image with our sin. We're like a little child first learning to color who picks up a a black crayon and takes a, a Rembrandt and begins to just sort of scrub all over the image. It's still a Rembrandt. But it ain't what it was, is it? So it is with us in our sin. But, but God has now a perfect image bearer, a perfect likeness, a, a perfect revelation of, of who he is. And it's his son, Jesus Christ. So if we want to know what God the invisible is like, we look at Jesus the visible. We don't need an artist rendering, we don't need movies, we don't need special Easter documentaries on major network television. We come to the Gospels, we come to the Bible, and we look at Jesus, for he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know what an imprint is? you ever cleaned the windows in your house or glass table in your house and Little kid come in there and put his hands all over the, the glass. He leaves what? He leaves an imprint, doesn't he? He leaves, he leaves fingerprints and an impression. Well, stamped on the Son of God, it's the exact imprint of God Himself. Some people pretending to be scholars say Christians, later Christians, made things like this up. But, beloved, these are things that Jesus says about Himself. So keep your finger in Colossians chapter 1, if you will. Turn with us to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. In John, Jesus is talking with his disciples there, and there's a disciple there named Philip. In John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip has a request, a a beautiful request, a wonderful request of Jesus, and and yet it's missing something. Philip asked Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I like that. Philip's saying, all I want to do is see God. If I could just see God, if I could just get a glimpse of God, that will be enough for me. I think Philip is probably reading Psalm 17, 15, where David says, I, I am my righteous. When I see God, I shall be satisfied. And Philip said, just, you know, like Moses in Exodus, let me, just let me see your glory, God. Just let me see you. And Philip makes that request. And Jesus, though, wants to adjust his perspective. Notice what Jesus says as the text continues. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. (laughs) Philip, Philip, I'm standing right here in front of you. I am God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at me. What do you think you've been witnessing all this time? Men and women were, as I said, made in God's image to show forth his glory, but nobody does it like the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. It was the exact reputa- rep- representation of God's image. If we would see God, we must look away from ourselves. It isn't that God is in us and we sort of turn in and burrow in on ourselves and find God in there. No, beloved, it's only darkness in there. We turn out from ourselves. And we look upon Christ as he reveals himself in the Bible. We'll see a moving, living picture of the one true and living God. And not only is he the image of the invisible God, notice verse 15, secondly, says he is the firstborn of all creation. In the fourth century, there was a leader in the church named Arius who began to teach, based upon this verse, that Jesus was a created being. His heresy forced the early church leaders to deal with that teaching and to summarize what the Bible teaches and what we have now come to call the Nicene Creed. And that's where the early church said, no, 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 no. Keep reading the context, Arius. He's not a created being. That's not what firstborn of creation means. No, he is fully God and fully man. And in fact, in this very section, what we're being told is, is that he is God. The idea of firstborn here is not the one, the idea that he was the sort of first person born of something, given birth. The idea here is an idea that actually runs throughout the entire Bible. This is the the firstborn in the sense that he is the one who inherited all of the family's wealth. In the Old Testament, the firstborn son would receive all the wealth of his father. It would be passed on like that. And this is why when you read your Old Testament, you see all these struggles around the rights of the firstborn, right? You see Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb, who will be first? And and you see others sort of quibbling over the rights. Well, it's because it's a picture, really, of how God the Father grants all that is his to God the Son. When this text says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it means he has inherited everything that is created. It all belongs to him. Everything in the cosmos, in the stars, in the skies, in the, in the universe is in the hand of Christ. He owns it all and he rules it all. And beloved, that includes you and me. We are part of creation. Therefore, we rightly belong to Jesus as his creatures. Let me ask you a question. Have we been thinking... That our lives are our own. Have we been thinking we have the right to rule our own lives? Have we been thinking we owe no one an answer, but answer only to ourselves? Beloved, whatever that kind of thinking rises in our minds and our hearts, we may be in in for a rude awakening. Christ, the firstborn of all, demands our lives, demands our obedience, and rightly so as the firstborn of all creation. But Paul keeps going in this hymn, verse 16. He tells us a third thing that illustrates why Jesus is greater than everything in creation. He is the creator of all things. Look there. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I mean, beloved, if we think Jesus, if we think of him as a, just a good man walking around Galilee, teaching some good sayings and doing some unusual miracles, we, we are paying him no honor. We, we are not thinking of him rightly. When we think of Jesus, verse 16 says, we must think of him as the creator of the universe. He's not just the one who inherits it, he's the one who makes it. Verse 16 reminds us of Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the Bible plainly says God created everything, but the Bible also tells us that this God has a name, Jesus. It was, notice verse 16, by him. That all things were created. He is the agent or the worker who does the creating. And so we think of John's gospel. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Many of you will know this. In the beginning was what? And the word was what? And the word was? He was in the beginning with? All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. There's firstborn of all creation. And then this clause, through whom he also created the world. See, Paul and all the Bible writers want us to know that all things means all things. That's why he added in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Heaven and earth refer to things above and below. The entire universe. Visible and invisible refer to things you can see and things you can't see. We can see water, but not wind. Both are created by Christ. We can see war, but not emotion. Both are equally real and sometimes destructive. Jesus created them all. Thrones or dominions refer to human governments and powers, but rulers and authorities often refer to the spiritual forces like angels and demons in the invisible realm. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about angels you can't see or presidents you elect. Christ made them all. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in some indescribable way, The universe was made through him. Notice the change in preposition. Not just by him, but through him. Reminds us of Acts 17, 28. In God, we live and move and have our being. In some way, Jesus not only created all things in the beginning, but remains the very ground of all existence and creation. And all things were created, notice the last preposition, for him. Creation exists for his pleasure and his use. Creation ends in his hands. As one commentator puts it, Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being and he stands at his end as the goal of the universe. The universe finds its purpose and meaning in Jesus. And so do we, beloved. This is why the quest for meaning apart from Christ is so frustrating and empty. We come to laugh at those people who say they need to take time off from school or work so they can travel and find themselves. So where did you last put yourself? <laughs> and we chase it and we look just as we were singing in that song. I looked everywhere for something better than Jesus. And here's what we discover. Meaning clicks into place. Purpose settles into the heart. Identity gets shaped and solidified when we come to this Jesus. We we don't find ourselves until we find him. And until we find ourselves in him. For he is the one for whom we was made. The one who made us. Our, Our purpose is fulfilled in Christ. But we miss that if our thoughts about Christ are low. He is our creator, beloved. And notice this in verse 17. Paul wants to keep exalting Christ in our sight. He, He wants to keep lifting Jesus higher so we might break free to worship him. So verse 17 says, and he is before all things. This can mean two things. Either Jesus is before all things in regard to time, or Jesus is before all things in regard to importance or priority or rank. But almost always, Paul uses this phrase with regard to time. He's pointing out to us that not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but he's so far from being a created being himself, he exists eternally. He exists before the worlds begin. He exists before time. Time is a creation of his. He's on the other side of go. This is Jesus. Again, he gets into trouble. Jesus himself, when he, when he teaches this about himself, you'll recall in, I think it's John chapter 8, he's having this conversation with the religious leaders of his days, Jewish people who are big on Abraham and talking about their father Abraham. And Jesus says something like this, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was talking about because he used the the divine name, I am. I am the self-existent one, the one who has no beginning and no end, who always was and always is and always will be. And they knew so clearly that he was claiming to be the God who existed before all things. The Bible says they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Men might be confused about this, but Jesus isn't. And a man's never more honest than when he's on his knees praying to God in earnest. He's never more true about himself than when he is praying with with eternity in view. And we see Jesus praying in John chapter 17, nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And in John chapter 17, he prays this in verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's conscious of his preexistence and eternality, even in his prayers. Men may be confused about this, but Jesus isn't, not in the least. If a skeptic who never knew Jesus says, Jesus was not pre-existent and was not God, and Jesus says in the Bible that he was, I'm going with Jesus. The Lord existed before creation itself. And the question for us is, what difference does this make? Why does Paul tell us that he is before all things, that he existed before all things? Well, it means Jesus cannot be contained or limited to creation. He's not stuck in the world the way we are. He is before creation and as firstborn, he rules creation. That means Jesus can help me when I need it. Or, or, or Jesus' preexistence also means that he has seen everything that has ever happened and nothing is new to him. He, he was here before creation began. He was there when it began. And he's been here ever since. When we say Jesus has seen it all, we mean he has seen it all. Nothing surprises him. That means no situation, beloved, that we find ourselves in. We ain't catch Jesus by surprise and didn't catch him off guard. We might be surprised and overwhelmed. We might think this is new and no other person's been tempted this way and struggled this way, but, but Jesus ain't surprised. Not the one who sits high and looks low. Not the one who saw the end from the beginning. And This gives me great confidence in every situation that I face, that he is with me and able to help me and knows precisely what he is doing. Not only is he before all things, but notice verse 17, the second part there, he holds all things together. Right now the earth spins on its axis at 1,040 miles per hour. So fast you and I don't feel it and we don't fly off the earth. Right now light travels at 186,000 miles a second, acting as both a particle and a wave. A healthy human body, did you know this? You think you're sitting still, vibrates between 62 and 72 megahertz a second. I don't even know what all that means, but (laughs) with all this spinning and moving and vibrating, how does the universe remain whole? Answer, Jesus holds all things together in himself. I mean, when you think about it, the entire creation should just fly apart at the seams, right? I don't believe in the Big Bang theory, but but if I did, I'd have one major question to solve. How did the destructive chaos of an explosion take on order and pattern of the universe without a creator? If the thing blew up, how did it come back together again? (laughs) Who put it together again? I mean, saying an explosion can cause something as beautiful and intricate as all of the universe It's like saying you can pour out a can of alphabet soup and get a Shakespeare uh, sonnet. (laughs) The beauty and order of the universe comes from the one who holds it together, beloved. Hebrews 1 verse 3 again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's why creation doesn't dissolve in an instant into a billion microscopic elements. Jesus, by his powerful word, is holding the universe and holding you and I and holding all things that he has created together. There's no one in all of creation like the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, do you recognize Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation with rights over it, the creator of all things by and through and for himself, the God who is before all things in time and the, and the one holding all things together. Do you, when you say Jesus and hear his name, do your thoughts go up that high? If, if we did, how would our next decision be different? How would we perceive our reality if that was uppermost and more constant? In our thinking? Are our thoughts too low or high enough? They can't be too high. Approaching high enough, Jesus. Beloved, there's nothing and no one in all creation greater than Jesus. Which brings us to the second thing we want to meditate on here. There's nothing in all of redemption greater than Jesus. As we said before, Paul now sort of turns his focus away from the universe, away from the cosmos, and he turns his focus now to the church and God's work of saving people for himself. And the first thing that he tells us on Jesus's resume is that he is the head of the body, the church. In this context, the word church doesn't refer to a local church like this one. It refers to all of the people who have been redeemed of all time in every place, what we call the universal church or the spiritual church. Local churches like this one are an expression of that universal people, right? So he's talking about Jesus is the head, yes, of this local church, but he's the head of all of the redeemed humanity in every place. And in fact, we are each members of his body. When we say member... We should not be thinking of the Rotary Club, or Sam's Club, or your bridge club. We we should think member the way a finger is a member of the hand, the way the hand is a part of the arm, the way the arm, just so y'all know, is a part of the body, (laughs) just so y'all know, all right? As from the Spirit. And what in in my notes? What in my notes? (laughs) Okay, come back to the text now. (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ unites every Christian to and in himself. We are the body of Christ. And he is the head. In fact, Jesus is the only head of the church. He is the sufficient head of the church. He is the perfect head of the church. He is absolutely essential to the church. As one commentator put it, without a head, a body cannot function. There will be no sight, hearing, thought process, intelligence, or direction. In the same way, without his head, the church is at best a lifeless corpse. It is not that Jesus is a valuable addition a useful acquisition without him the church cannot be without him all is lost to be without christ is to be completely without hope no worse fate is possible see it's from the head that the body gets its life that's why paul in colossians chapter 2 verse 19 you can let your eyes drift over there tells us that we ought to hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourish and knit together through its joints and ligaments, notice, grows with a growth that is from God. If you want to grow with a growth that comes from God, then we must remain connected to the head from whom the life comes. There are other ways of growing that are not from God. Self-effort and grit and determination, and they all have their place. But the best growth, beloved, the sweetest growth, the growth we really want, it's the growth that God produces from His head through the body to every member. That growth that comes as a consequence of being spiritually united to Jesus. And this is remarkably liberating as we'll, get to, as we'll see when we get to Colossians chapter 2. For if we are joined to Christ, Christ who is always living, lives in us. And living things grow. And he produces that growth. Our head, Jesus Christ, rules over us and works through us as his body. But notice, secondly, he's also, again, the beginning, the firstborn and preeminent. You see the way in which Paul is covering the same ground as he did in those first three verses, only now he's doing it with his focus on the church. Just as Jesus is before all things in creation and is the firstborn of creation, so Jesus is, notice, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead with regard to the church. In other words, Christ is the first of the new humanity. He's the first of the church. He's the first of the resurrected and recreated humanity that he works in himself. As we said, there would be no church if there was no Jesus. He starts the church. He's the founder of the church. Matthew chapter 16, he's the builder of the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But not only would there be no church without Jesus, but you can have no Jesus without the church. The church is his body, united to him as its head. So we must be in the body in order to be in him. Don't give in to that long range of Christianity that acts as if you don't need the rest of Christ's body. And that you can have some relationship to him when he's the head of that body and you have broken yourself off from it. That is an unbiblical and ultimately foolish way to think about the Christian life. There would be no Jesus that we could access apart from his church, his body, which he has created. And there would be no life after death without Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. He says in the Gospels, I am the resurrection and the life. And just as he has rights over all of creation, so as firstborn from the dead, he has rights over all those raised from the dead, whether they are raised to his final judgment because of their sin or raised to their perfected redemption because they believe in him. He is the Lord of the living and the dead, the Bible tells us. And so as one writer put it, we who expect to rise into the life of God Owe it all to him because he is risen for us. Our resurrection is simply the fuller part of his resurrection. Our rising from the dead happens only because Christ rose from the dead. And the reason that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn to the church is so that, notice the verse, in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, so that Jesus might be first above everything. As I said before, the the only ruler to the church is Jesus. The owner of it all is Jesus. High and lifted up in the church above everything is Jesus. And this idea that Jesus is preeminent strikes at the very heart of our often low thoughts about Christ. We think low thoughts of Jesus, we begin to put ourselves or to put other things on roughly the same plane and level as Christ. We lose or forget his preeminence. And here's what one commentator says. It is always a temptation for Christian leaders, speaking to leaders now, to want a place in the sun. But the primacy belongs to Jesus. There is no scope whatever for popes in the Christian world. This even applies to Protestant popes, those empire builders who treat local churches as small ponds where they can be the biggest fish. A good test for a church or an individual Christian is to ask, who sits enthroned in glory in your mental world? Oh, my friend, Jesus is the head, the beginning, the firstborn, the preeminent one in the church. Make no mistake about that, beloved. Uh, Jesus is the head of ARC, not Pastor Thabiti. Jesus is the head of ARC, not the elders. And we're a little congregational church, and the congregation has to take action in various things from time to time. But don't get it twisted. The congregation is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the congregation. There is one ruler, one Lord, one head who alone is sufficient, who alone is competent to rule his congregation, his people, his body. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the authority any pastor in this church ever has is delegated. And I'm going to tell you, beloved, an elder with a closed Bible is an elder with no authority. He delegates it to us in his word. We bind the people to his word. We call each other up in his word because this is where he's exercising his headship in his word. Christ is above all. But notice verse 19. It's better For the first time in his hymn, Paul now states plainly what has been implied throughout, that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. The Son of God is fully God. This is amazing because he's also fully man. That's why theologians call Jesus the the God-man. And when Paul writes that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, he's informing us that Jesus is not like the Greek demigods of his day or like the pagan pantheons of his day. Uh, We don't have a, a system of worship where we worship one supreme God like Zeus and then we sort of give tribute to lesser gods like Athena or something. No, 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 no. There is one God in three persons. And all the fullness of this God dwells in the Son, in Jesus Christ. And it's remarkable. Christ makes it so that you can't be a Christian and not believe that he's God. So he says, back in John chapter 14, we referenced this before, verses 8 to 11, where Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That, that would be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? and You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. But he goes on to say this in verse 9. Uh, verse nine. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, I'm telling you I'm God. And if that's too much for you to comprehend, watch what I do how I raise the dead and heal the sick, how I forgive sins and walk on water, how I speak to wind and oceans lie still. If it's too much for you to believe me when I tell you that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, check me out when I deal with Pharisees and their twisted doctrine. Check me out when I lift up prostitutes out of the mud. I am the God of the universe who heals heals. And forgives, who rescues and restores, who commands and rules. Believe me when I tell you, and if not, watch what I do. All the fullness of God dwelling in him bodily. Oh, beloved, I know there's some people calling themselves scholars who say Jesus is just a historical man. And there's some people thinking themselves wise who say Jesus is a a great religious leader. That's all. Beloved, those views are way too low for what the Bible tells us. Jesus demands that we believe in him as fully God. And if no one else in all the world believes this about Jesus, his church does, his true church does. We've had our eyes open to see and to know God in the face of his son. Have your eyes been open, beloved? you see Jesus this way? I hope so. For all the fullness of God lives in him happily, pleased to do so. Christian, consider what this means for you. This is not merely abstract theology. I'll we'll give it to you again in the words of a, another commentary. It's a lengthy paragraph, but walk, walk along with me. He's referring to this verse, and he says, It follows that anyone who has a share in Christ has all that there is of God. Christ is inexhaustible. The treasures of divinity will never run out. The supply of grace is limitless. If we are joined by faith to him, everything that exists in God becomes accessible to us. All his attributes and all their boundless perfection are ours to rest in and enjoy. His searing holiness, his love that knows no limit, his immeasurable power. When Christ makes his home in a human heart, he brings all these and more with him. While we may not yet know God as we ought or appreciate and enjoy him with a degree that could be ours, yet it remains true that the God that we do not know, enjoy and appreciate is completely and wholly ours in Christ. We have far more in Christ than we have yet begun to realize. And this is why of all the treasures we have in Christ, Christ himself is the greatest treasure. And this is why Paul says over in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, again, that the fullness of God dwells in him bodily and you have been filled in him. Oh, beloved, let us today just get our minds around the fact that God fully is in Christ and Christ is in us and we have been filled in him and enjoy all that he is and all that he brings. Which brings us to a final thing. Notice that Jesus in verse 20 is the reconciler of all things through the church. Not only does he hold all things together in creation, as we saw, but in the church, he reconciles all things to himself. That's the point of verse 20. Now, by using the word reconcile, Paul is reminding us that sin broke God's relationship with all of creation. All creation was made for Jesus. But sin put all creation in opposition to him. The world is now hostile to God. The creation groans in futility, Romans 8 tells us. "Were Christ to leave the world as it is, the entire creation and every person in it would perish in sin and suffer God's judgment. Hell would be our home. But notice what Jesus has done. Rather than abandon the world to hell, he rescues the world through reconciliation to himself. He, he puts an end to the war and, and brings peace between creation and the creator. And the reconciliation of Christ is not just personal, it's also cosmic. Notice, it, it includes all things. In some amazing way, Jesus' reconciliation fixes things with God both on earth and in heaven. The sin of Adam somehow spoiled the sanctity of heaven. And it took Jesus to put heaven and earth back on speaking terms, back together again. And how does Jesus make peace between himself and all things? Notice what the text says there in verse 20. Through the blood of his cross. Oh, beloved, to comprehend what the Bible is saying right here. The one who is the image of God the firstborn of creation and of the dead, the creator of all things, who holds all things together, who is before all things and preeminent over all things, who is the head of the church, his body, that very one dies for us. All the fullness of God bodily gets nailed to a cross, gets pierced with a spear, gets mocked and spat upon, gets a crown of thorns pressed upon his head, is abandoned by his friends and jeered by his enemies. The one who is God fully takes the place of sinners. We are the ones who messed up the image of God and he yet is the perfect image and comes into the world and, and redeem us. redeems us through the shedding of his blood on the cross no man who's ever made up a religion ever made up a religion where god bleeds for his people no man who's ever made up a religion no pagan philosopher no 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 man stirred by demons to create a religion has ever thought god would be humble That God would empty himself and make himself of no reputation. That he would come into the creation that he made, the creation that rejected him, and he would take the place of his creation. That he would suffer the wrath that he had pronounced against sin. That he would suffer the judgment that his creation deserved. No man ever made that up. God revealed that in his son. God showed us what he's like in Jesus. And the world keeps asking God, do you love me? And God keeps answering this much stretched wide and hung high, this much, pierced and broken, crushed, afflicted, suffering, this much. Oh, our peace with God comes at the price of Jesus' blood. He died for us to reconcile us to himself, to make us new creations, to give us eternal life and everlasting hope to snatch us from the dungeons of hell to transfer us to the mansions of heaven. Fully God and fully man, fully for us. Oh, beloved, I don't know what you came into this room thinking about Jesus. Maybe not thinking much about him at all. But I wonder if you can see he's the only way for peace between you and God. And you don't need another way. Notice here, he has done it. He has reconciled, past tense. It is accomplished. It is finished. It is only for us to accept it, to rejoice in it, to receive it for the gift that it is. It's a marvelous thing. I, Jahil sent me a video yesterday of uh, some brothers on the street in Camden doing what some of us do on Saturdays, just going out in the neighborhood, praying, meeting neighbors, trying to have gospel conversations, and had a big old circle, and the brother was praying. He was going in. I thought he was going to pop a vessel, man. He was, he was just going in praying, man. whole video is prayer. It's a wonderful thing. And then, you know, I did what you shouldn't do. I looked at the comments thread. And uh, some person in the comments thread said, man, praise God. I, I hope that the Lord answers these prayers for Camden, New Jersey. That's a city that was in, city with so many problems. And, and uh, I hope that God answers these prayers for Camden, New Jersey. He was giving his amen. And then somebody replies to him, says, God won't help them. I looked at it. I just thought, first thing, just bust out my, I'm sitting in my computer and started talking out loud. First thing, bust out my, He already has. He already has. He's helped the whole broken world on Calvary's cross. Our deepest need isn't for a better police department. Our deepest need is not for better education. Our deepest need is not for higher income. Our deepest need is to be reconciled with God. And if we are reconciled with God, no matter all those other things, heaven is our home. The glory of Christ is our inheritance. Jesus himself is ours and all of his fullness. And God won't help you. God has done everything to help you in the most important way. He's helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. He's helped us when we did not want to help. He's helped us in ways we couldn't even comprehend because we thought we were all right in our sin. God sent his son clothed in our skin to redeem us from our sin and to make us brand new men, to make us brand new women, to make us brand new children if we trust in him. This is the most glorious news. Because it means I can stop working for salvation. Stop trying to rescue myself. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to find a way. Stop trying this thing and that thing. I had just turned to Jesus and welcome Him and accept Him. Fully God and fully man come into the world to save us who feel so forgotten and ignored and alone. And neglected. He came for you. He came for me. Receive him. And enjoy him. This morning. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. We exist to help people meet this Jesus, and to find the abundant life that he gives you want to talk with us about that, talk with the Christian friend who brought you. I'm going to be standing at that door after the service. Talk with any of the pastors or any people who come up front here in just a moment. We, we would like nothing more than to introduce you to Jesus for who he really is. Christian, this is your Lord. You have nothing to do but enjoy him. Think high thoughts of him. And have your heart stirred and filled with the glory of his love. Let's pray together. Oh God, the human language has not been created that can adequately explain what you divinely reveal. Our our words are weak and uninspired compared to who you are in your matchless glory, compared to who you are in your infinite power, compared to who you are in your great sacrificial love. Thank you for speaking to us through your word, the Bible. And thank you for demonstrating your love for us on the cross where you took our place and bore the judgment that we deserve, where you were punished instead of us so that we might be forgiven and might be reconciled to God. We say thank you. And this gift that we have come to know, we want, O Lord, everyone to know so that they might know the, the greatest treasure in all existence, you, yourself. Oh Lord, help us to in some way see more clearly, understand more deeply, and treasure more greatly who you are in all of your perfection. We pray this Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.